0: Glad to be with you this morning. We are actually wrapping up um, a series that we uh, that's carried over into this year today uh, through the Book of Philippians, and so we're finishing up uh, something we started uh, back um, in late October, early November, I believe. And so, uh, eight weeks that we uh, we have looked at this uh, this book, and um, the theme of Philippians, if you're if you're new with this, is joy. And um, is the overwhelming kind of theme that bubbles up out of it. And the interesting thing about that is it was written by a man who was in jail uh, for his faith, the Apostle Paul. And he writes a thank you letter to, this, to the Philippians uh, in Philippi. And in that thank you letter, his, his, his joy just kind of bubbles over. And he calls them to joy. He talks about how joyful he is. And that he talks about joy more in this book than any other New Testament book. It's just... Uh, incredible uh, testimony to God's grace in his life. In difficult circumstances, he had all this joy. And so we've kind of looked at some of the different elements um, uh, to, to Paul's joy uh, as we've went through this book. And this morning, we're going to talk about having joy through God's provision. And as we begin a new year, um, we're going to see um, that I think some of the themes in this passage are good themes for us as we start off a new year. The, the real big themes in, in, in this text this morning, in Philippians chapter 4 and verses 10 through 23, are contentment and generosity. Um, Those are the themes that kind of come up, but those themes have a mega theme that runs through them of God's provision. God's provision makes it possible uh, for you and I to live content lives and to live generous lives. And it's my hope this morning, as we kind of land the plane in Philippians, um, that you'll discover the joy of what it means to trust in God to provide for your life here in 2016. You know, God wants, I believe, in 2016 for all of us to live both content lives and generous lives. And that has nothing to do with being rich or or being wealthy. It has everything to do with your relationship with the Lord. And what would your 2016 look like if you were a more content person and a more generous person? What would that look like for you and the people around you? And what would it look like in the life of North Park if we as a body were more content and more generous in 2016? It's really very life-changing principles, I believe, this morning. Contentment and generosity played key roles in how the Apostle Paul advanced the gospel. Uh, but We're going to see this morning, But because of the contentment that God gave him in Christ, he was able to withstand incredible circumstances in order to advance the gospel. And because of the generosity of others, he was able to carry on in preaching the gospel and, and taking the gospel forward. And I believe the contentment of believers... Through God's provision and the generosity of believers in God's provision play key roles in how God advances His kingdom and advances His agenda, not just some 2,000 years ago, but in 2016 as well. If North Park is to be the church that God has us to be, it'll be because that we it is it is um, it is a people who is both filled with contentment and filled with generosity. Uh, that's just how God works. He works through a content, and generous people, and to, and these things kind of go together. Even though they're kind of two separate themes in the passage, they go together because content people are generous people. And uncontent people tend to not be very generous people. And so the more content you are, the more likely you are to be generous. And so as Paul comes to the end of his letter here, he's going to begin to focus on his thankfulness for the gift the Philippians gave. It's a thank you letter, and he waits to the end before he really gets to the thank you. And though the Philippians had, uh, through the Philippians, God had showed Paul that he was a faithful provider. God had provided for Paul through their gift a financial gift that they had gave to help him in his ministry. So look with me, starting in Philippians chapter 4, looking at verse starting in verse 10. If you don't have a Bible this morning, it's, it's up on the screen for you. We're reading from the uh, English Standard Version. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You are indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Two big ideas that I want us to see about God's provision, which is kind of the common theme that runs through this we're going to see this morning. And the, the first one is there uh, in, in verses 10 through 13, and that's God's provision is what enables us, enables our contentment. God's provision enables our contentment. You see in verse 10 that Paul is joyful here, that they're concerned about him. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. The Philippians had sent him a financial gift to help him uh, in his troubles as he was preaching the gospel. And Paul rejoices in their being concerned for him. It's not so much about the benefit to Paul, about the gift. It's not like, I'm so happy that you sent me money. It, it, Paul points it out, that, that's not what I'm really thrilled about. He says, it's not so much about the benefit to Paul, but about the spiritual indicator that this serves in the life of Philippi. Philippi was choosing to be involved in what God was doing. He says, you've revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned, but you had no opportunity. I'm not speaking of being in need. I've learned whatever situation I am to be content and He goes all the way through all this. But the, the idea was the fruit that had increased to their credit. That, that was the, the big indicator for Paul. See, Paul was not fretful about his circumstances. And they were bad. And he was in prison... Uh, he was, and so he, he had very meager means, and he didn't know if he was going to get out of prison or not. He was hopeful that he would. But he says here, I'm, I'm not talking about being in need. In other words, I'm not complaining about my situation. I'm not whining about not having enough. Paul had learned, he said, how to be content. Here's our first big theme of the passage, right? And that's that theme of contentment. And the Greek word Paul uses is a Greek or stoic word that referred to self-reliance. And in their Greek thought, the idea of being content meant being self-reliant. Not depending on things outside of you or your circumstances to make you satisfied and happy in life. But being self-reliant in that and being able to take care of that yourself. That's the word Paul chooses to use when he talks about his contentment. It's the idea of being able to handle whatever comes your way. And in the Greek thought, you wanted to be able to be happy and satisfied, divorced from your circumstances, and within yourself. But Paul said his contentment was learned, and that's one of the. When we read this, when we talk about contentment. This is one of those passages uh, that's got some very famous verses in it, like we're going to get to here in a minute, verse four thirteen, which is other than John three sixteen, probably the most famous verse in the New Testament, uh, the Tim Tebow verse, right? And so, Philippians four thirteen, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, and. It's, Paul says, though, that it, this contentment that he has is, is a learned contentment. And that's something we tend to kind of skip over. It's something he had come to understand and gained through personal experience and spiritual growth. It wasn't something he was just born with. Paul had learned, what he had learned was not simply how to be satisfied in life, but how to be content no matter the circumstances he faced in life. Whether those were really bad circumstances like being in jail or being hungry or being shipwrecked on an island somewhere, or really good circumstances like the ones he was likely born with. In every circumstance, he'd learn contentment. He says, whether I'm brought low or abound, whether I have plenty or I'm hungry, whether I have an abundance or a need, he says, whether I'm at the bottom of the food chain or the top of the food chain, no matter where I'm at in society, every circumstance, I've learned how to be content." And see, some things have to be learned, and they have to be learned by experience. You know, some things are just easier to learn and grow in them as you experience these things. When I was back in Alabama, um, a couple of times I had something uh, there is my favorite breakfast dish in Alabama, and it's we call it chocolate and biscuits. So if you're not a Southerner, you probably don't know what that is. But we take chocolate and we make it a gravy. Okay, because everything's gravy in Alabama and anything can really be made of gravy. Really, it can. And so um, we take chocolate. It's cocoa and sugar and all this unhealthy stuff mixed together and flour and and you cook it and boil it and it kind of becomes this chocolate gravy. And then we take biscuits and you put and smother them in chocolate. And if you're smart, you put butter in there. And if you're smart, you have bacon with it. And um, great way to shorten your lifespan. But it's uh, it's really good. It's as good as it sounds chocolate for breakfast and now I could tell you about that some of you are like that just sounds gross who wants that for re-? but unless you've experienced it you'll be singing a different story most likely all right and so and, and some things are just that way on a more serious note I saw Star Wars a couple of weeks ago um, I talking seriously now right and I could tell you how great that movie is and no spoiler alerts here but it's better if you experience it but really the, the best illustration I can think of is it's like driving you can take a written test and you can have all the information. You can know all about it. But it's different when you get behind the wheel and you have to make the turns and you have to look out for the other drivers. You learn by experience. And Paul says, that's what how I've learned contentment. I've learned it in a tangible way. I've been brought low. <laughs> and I have abounded. I, I, I've been in both situations. And as I've done so, I've learned what real contentment is. And notice his extremes. I mean, really, it's bad as it gets materially in some points. And at some points, how... how it's really good materially. And he says, in both those situations, they do not affect whether I'm content, whether I'm satisfied and happy in life, so to speak, whether, whether I'm at rest in my soul. Paul's contentment was not dependent on material circumstances. Some people's contentment in life looks a lot like the start, stock market. It's up today, it's down tomorrow, and it's just like this. And Paul's was steady because it was rooted in something that was steady. It was not tied to physical circumstances because those things change. Health changes. Financial situations change. Your job situations change. Your family dynamic can change. Things in this life change. And Paul said, I found something that doesn't change, and therefore my contentment doesn't change, because my contentment is actually rooted down in that. And in verse 13, he gives us what that is. He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul's contentment was dependent on the strength of Christ. In their day, contentment, like I said, was about self-reliance, self-sufficiency. Paul says he found the secret is actually Christ's sufficiency. He can handle his business because he's, Christ is enabling him to do so. It's radically different than the Greek culture that thought of this self-reliance on your own. Paul's saying it's about depending on Christ. The key to Paul's contentment was that it was supernaturally supplied. Christ gave him the strength he needed so it didn't matter what the circumstances he was because he had a supernatural strength supplied by God through Christ. See, the world says to be content you have to make so much money or you have to be doing this or that. Everything's on you, right? You, you can't just have a job, you've got to have your dream job. You, you can't just make a living, you've got to make this much of a living. You can't just have a home, you've got to have a certain kind of home. But Paul says, no, that, that's not the case for me. It's it's not really about that. My contentment is not rooted in things. Paul says it's not that's not what you need. What you the one thing you need is is Christ. He says that's where true, lasting, stable, non fluctuating contentment is found. Now, this verse is one of the, probably the verses that's most used out of context in all the Bible. Philippians four thirteen. I can do all things through Christ who strengthened me. This verse is not meant to be an anthem to personal achievement. This is not a verse about if you dream it, you can achieve it. This is not the I believe I can fly of the New Testament, okay? This is not, you know, um, this is not about you being able to do what you want to do because Christ strengthens you. And that's how we generally take it, I believe, in church culture and popular culture. It's not about you being able to do whatever you want to do because Christ has strengthened you to do it. This verse is about being content in all circumstances, even when you can't do whatever you'd like to do, you're content anyway. It's not about I can accomplish my dreams because Christ strengthens me. It's about when my dreams crash, I'm okay because Christ strengthens me. It's totally different than how we generally take it and apply it. In other words, it's not, hey, I, I all things through Christ who strengthens me. I want to play in the NBA, so therefore I can play in the NBA. Well, you're five foot five and slow and uncoordinated. Christ has made his decision, okay? He made you, <laughs> right? That's not what it's about. I use that silly illustration to make a point. This verse would be better suited to remind you that you can be content even when you fail to reach all your personal goals and dreams because your contentment is not rooted in those things but in Christ. And in particular, this verse is related to finances. See, this verse is in a lot of weight rooms. Never seen one on a bank, never seen it. I've seen it on coffee cups. People quote it for their workout regimen. They quote it for whatever. They're, but I've never seen somebody you know, like pull out their checkbook and on the top of it it says, I can do all things that Christ who strengthens me. But that's the m- most clear context in all of Scripture is he's talking about financial dynamics. And he's talking about no matter how poor and broke I am and how they throw me in a prison cell and I don't have anything to eat and they're just feeding me bread and water and I don't have the home I want, I don't have the situation I want. I can be content through Christ who strengthens me. Christ's empowerment enabled Paul to be content in both good and bad times with little and lots. The temptation to greed and covetousness, though, go hand in hand with the battle for contentment in our life. See, notice he points out, I'm not just content in the bad times, I'm content in the good times. We say, well, it's easy to be content in the good times. Think about that for a second. Some of the most uncontent people you'll meet sometimes are some of the wealthiest. Just because you've got money and got it and you can buy anything you want doesn't mean you're a content person. Listen, you can't you can you can't be greedy and covetous and content. Just because someone's wealthy doesn't mean they're those things. That's not what I mean. But my point is, there's a war that goes on within us between contentment and greed or covetousness. All right, I want more or I want what you have, and and contentment. There's this war that goes on, and both can't win. You can't be content and be greedy for more all the time. You, those things won't go... They don't go hand in hand. In fact, a couple of other times in the New Testament when contentment is mentioned, greed is mentioned right there with it. First Timothy 6, verses 6 through 10. Paul writes Timothy and he says this. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich... Fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and all kinds of evils. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of, excuse me, ruin and destruction. Skip ahead. For the love of money, verse 10, is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. You say, what's what's at stake in my battle with greed, in my battle with contentment? Your faith. He's saying people have literally walked away from the Christian faith because they're so consumed with the things of this world and the love of money. Because you can't have the love of money and be consumed with greed and be content. And what's at stake? What's at stake is eternity. In Hebrews 13, 5, he says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content. See, they're 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 at war. Be content with what you have, he says. For he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. What's he saying there? Your contentment is rooted in Christ. You have Christ. That's what Paul's saying, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The writer of Hebrews says, you can be content because he said, I'll never leave you or never forsake you. Your contentment's not in the the things that you have or don't have. You can't be a lover of money and be content. The Bible sets them up as opposites. If you love money, that will manifest itself in greed and coveting, and then you will not be content. And you can never have enough of what you love supremely. And if money is your supreme love, you'll never have enough of it. You'll always need more. See, why would someone need to learn contentment when they have so much? And that's generally what we deal with here. Uh, And and some have been through circumstances where you have to learn to be content with little. But many of us in our society, in our culture, we deal with the other side of it. We're learning how to be content with, with more than most of the world, the great vast majority of the world has. And why would someone need to learn contentment in that situation? Well, it's because it's easy to grow less dependent on the Lord when you're distracted by the good things that God actually has provided for you you may begin to fail to see things as blessings and begin to see them as earnings, simply. They just become things that you possess and things that you have and things that you've earned instead of things that God has given you. And if you see stuff as merely something you obtain and not as something God has placed in your life and given to you, it's easy to be frustrated that you, don't, you can't obtain more because it's all about you. And see, when you see stuff as a gift provided by a benevolent father, it's a reminder to you that he's in control and we need to be content because he's the provider and we're the stewards. We're not owners, we're stewards. I heard a preacher talk recently about rich folks' problems. They give you some rich folks' problems. Looking at a closet full of clothes and saying, I don't have anything to wear, right? Been guilty of that? Rich folks' problems. I can't get my mobile phone, I can't get my smartphone to work at the mall. Right, it's a rich folks' problem. My high-speed internet's too slow. It's a rich folks' problem. It costs too much to cool this home, right? Rich folks' problem. The restaurant I ate out last night had horrible service. These are rich folks' problem. said, that's not rich. Ask the rest of the world. Most of us in this room are like in the top five percent in the world, or something like that. I, I don't want to be held to my statistics here, but it's absurd how wealthy we are compared to the rest of the world. And my point is this, everybody always thinks someone else is rich. Unless you're like at the top, you can always point to somebody and say, well, that's what rich is, not me. So what's the standard, right? Well, we have more than we need for the most part, most of us. And so we have to learn to be content with what God has, and not to be the people that are greedy and always wanting more. Believers who have money and who are content in life, are not hoping in their money. The reason they're content is not because they have more money than you do. The reason people that are wealthier than you do and that are very content and they love Jesus, their contentment is not rooted in the fact that their home is bigger than yours, their car is newer than yours, or their bank account has more money in it. It's rooted in something else. It's not driven by money. They are trusting the God who has provided for them and He is strengthening them to be content. And if they're genuinely content in Christ, even if all that goes away, they'll still be content. If you're trusting in your circumstances or a certain number we want in a bank account, or a 401, or an IRA, you're never going to be content. It's never going to be enough. But if you're trusting God to strengthen you in Christ, to help you and enable you in your contentment, you can be truly content, and then you can also be the same person that trusts God to provide for you so that you can live generously. That brings us to the second theme. Number two, God's provision not only enables our contentment, it enables our generosity. And that's in verses 14 through 20. See, content people are generous people. That's not what Paul is really driving at here. I, but, it, but but these themes are linked together so closely for a reason, I believe. When you're walking with God and He is providing your strength and you're trusting His supply for your needs, you can be both content and generous. In verse 14, we see, he says, it was kind of, Philippi says, it's kind of you to share in my trouble. They, they were practicing generosity. They had shared Paul's trouble. In other words, he's saying, you have made my problem your problem. My financial problem has become, Physical circumstances have become your problem and you have taken that on yourself. And in verse 15 and 16, we learned that this was a habit for Philippi. They were, Paul said at one time they were the only church that had supported him in Macedonia. They were the first to jump in with Paul to support God's work through his ministry. He goes on to say that he is well supplied thanks to their gift. He has, he has all that he needs. God used their generosity to provide for Paul. God provided for Paul, but he chose to do it through other individuals, through the Philippians in particular, because God uses people to accomplish his purposes. We've all benefited from God using other people in our lives. You you say, well, I, I got a job and I make great money. Who got you that job? You say, well, I went and got an education. Well, who taught you that education? You see, there's always other people that are, that are linked in that are helping us because God works through people. That's just the way He works. He works through people. Paul's concern about their financial support of his ministry, though, was, was not so much as I said earlier about his getting financial help. It was about their spiritual blessing. He didn't seek the gift, but the fruit, he said, that increased to their credit. He knew that by investing in his ministry and helping advance the gospel, they were investing in the kingdom and something of eternal value. Something that had eternal rewards. See, when it comes to giving to God's work, Sometimes we fail to understand the gravity of what's going on. When you give to gospel ministries like the local church, you're investing your money where God has placed his heart. Because God's heart is for his bride and his mission of making disciples. So when you invest the money he's entrusted you with and those types of things, you're putting your money in the one thing you know God's invested. say, so how do you know? Because he gave his son. How do I know God's invested in the local church? He sent His Son to die for His local church. He sent His Son to die for His people. He sent His Son to redeem a people for Himself. God is invested. God is fully invested in the church. And so, I know God's heart is here. I know God's hearts for advancing the gospel because God's fully invested. He's given His Son. In verses 15 through 18, Paul uses all kinds of financial terms. Giving, receiving, a gift... He talks about increases and in credit and full payment. They're all financial terms there in the Greek. It's very clear. Paul's talking about money, right? We get uncomfortable with that in church. We do. Preachers get uncomfortable with it. We don't, we don't like to talk about it all the time. Jesus didn't mind. He talked about money a lot, way more than I do. Uh, he talked about it a lot because the reason is, and the reason we must not be afraid to address it in the church, is money is one of the clearest heart indicators in the Bible. It's probably the clearest heart indicator ever it's the one Jesus addressed the most because Jesus said where your treasure is there your heart will be also you find your treasure you find your heart your heart follows your treasure and see at the end of the day what we're learning in this passage is that giving is a worship issue because giving is a heart issue God provides for you and you steward what he has given you in a way that glorifies him and that's a worship act when you give to gospel centered ministries that's a worship act that's why the Bible doesn't just tell us to give it tells us how to give You ever think about that? The Bible doesn't just say give X amount. The Bible says, give this way. Give joyfully. The attitude, right? It actually commands our attitude. It's not enough to God that we just give. God says, I want you to give with the right attitude. I want you to to give generously but joyously. God loves a cheerful giver, it says. Why does God do it that way? Because it's a worship act. That's why the attitude matters. Because it's a matter of obedience and it's a matter of worship. In verse 18, he describes their gift, the Philippians' gift, in a way that sounds a lot like Old Testament sacrificial worship. He's using worship themes from the Old Testament. He says, I received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. He calls it a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. It's like like a page out of the Old Testament with the sacrificial offering stuff here. Because it's a worship act. It was was worship what they did. Notice some things about their gift. First thing I notice is that it was sent. He says the gifts that you sent there in verse 18. It's more They had more than good intentions. They had good intentions. I'm sure they prayed for Paul. But they had more than good intentions. You you can't be generous and you can't grow in generosity without choosing to actually give. You know, we can have good intentions and we can talk about it. We can pray about how much to give and what to do here and what to do. But at some point, we got to write a check. At some point, we gotta use the debit card. At some point, we've, we've got to we've got to get involved and take the step. And they, they they sent the gift. They didn't just collect the gift. They sent the gift and they put it to work. So maybe you've been thinking about being more generous in your life, thinking about giving consistently to the local church or other ministries. And you've looked at your budget and you wonder, how in the world am I going to begin? You don't you don't see any margin there. Well, let me tell you where, how to begin. Just begin. <laughs> just just begin. Half the battle is just getting started. I would encourage you, if you haven't already done this, to clear room in your budget right now in 2016 to give a minimum of 10% of your income back towards God's work. I'd encourage you to do that. Try it. Try it for a month. Try it for a week. Try it for two months. Just just, just, just try it. Well, don't tell them to try it, Josh. Just tell them to do it. Just try it. Right? I'd rather you try it and decide not to do it later than to have never tried it. Because I, I I, believe God will bless you. I believe He will encourage you through that. And I believe God works in and through Our giving, it is a, you know, giving is actually a spiritual gift. Some people are just exceedingly generous. And sometimes God may fund those people and allow them to to do more things and things like that. Uh, that, That's not necessarily the case, but we know in the New Testament it's a gift. But everybody's to give. And so it's something that's to be exercised because it's also a spiritual gift. It's something we need to exercise. It's something we're to bless people with. It also means it's something that's not for ourselves. It's, It's for others. And God wants us to exercise that. We have to practice it. We have to have disciplines in our life. Just like I have to have a discipline of, of reading my Bible. And I hope you have a plan this year for reading the Bible. Whether you're going through it in a year or going through it in five years, just have a plan for reading it, right? And going through it. Well, have a plan for giving. Make a commitment. He calls their gift a fragrant offering and a sacrifice. I was amazed when I was reading a, a commentary this week on this passage. And he pointed out the similarities to this passage in Ephesians five two. Let me read Ephesians five two to you. So here in Philippians, he, he's talking about their gift, and he says it's a fragrant offering and a sacrifice, pleasing and acceptable to God. In Ephesians 5.2, Paul wrote to the Ephesians and said, Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Talking about Christ giving his life on the cross. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Very similar language, right? Yeah, he's using the same language to talk about the cross. Paul uses the same language to describe the Philippians' financial gift as he does to describe Jesus' work on the cross. Now, obviously, Jesus' work on the cross was a one-of-a-kind sacrifice, one-of-a-kind offering that was the ultimate offering. In obedience to the Father for the for God's glory and for our salvation, Jesus laid down His life for sinners, right? That's the ultimate thing. That, that's the heart of the gospel, that Jesus laid down His life for us. That while we were yet sinners, broken and marred and messed up, God pursued us and that he sent his son to lay down his life for us, to bear our sin and our guilt, to take God's wrath and turn it to favor and to be raised from the dead, dying for us and being raised from the dead so that we can have life. I mean, that's that's the heart of the gospel. And Paul uses that same language to talk about this gift because it's the perfect picture of generosity and of sacrifice. Ultimately, all our giving flows from God's giving. We are generous because we've been shaped by God's generosity our giving should be shaped by the gospel. We give because we have received. And North Park's a very generous church. We, we, we've seen that. God has blessed us with generous people. It's a generous church. And so, that's a good thing for me as the preacher, I can stand up today and I can talk about money and I can talk about giving and nobody has to worry about if I'm trying to drum up an offering because we're not making budget or something like that. We, we're, we're fine. God's been good to us. God has blessed us and he's done it through his people. He's done it because that's how God works. And so, just like Paul said, I want you to understand something. This isn't about North Park or North Park need money this morning or in 2016. This is about you. And this is about us as a people being involved in what God's doing and the blessing that is received and being involved in ministry through financial giving and having our heart placed there. And that's what Paul's encouraging them to. See, we give in response to what God's already done. That's another reason, I think, for the link here between this and Ephesians 5.2 and the cross. Our giving is a response to who God is and what God's done. The same thing that prompts me to sing and worship or to read my Bible or to obey God prompts me to give. Chiefly, it's the Holy Spirit, but it's in response to what Christ has done in the gospel. See, Pastor Tim Keller says there are only two types of offerings. You can either offer up an offering as a response or a request. It's so only two way. I agree with you. That's a great point. And our offerings, it's a, it's a response or a request. Some people give that way. Their offering is a request. This is the idea of I'll give X amount of dollars of my income towards God's work and I'll expect God to do blank in return, right? It's like we're making an agreement with God. We're, 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 we're just hoping that, you know, God's going to do this or fix this or solve this and you know, we, the whole problem is financial. And if we'll just give, and, and sometimes you see this mo- to motivate you to give on TV. Tele-evangelists like to use this kind of kind of, kind of, kind of motive. If you, you do this and God will do this for you, right? It's a transaction. That's not generosity if we're trying to make a request with our gift. That's not just like a gift. That's not generosity. That's a request, that's a transaction. That's a negotiation. Our offering is supposed to be a response. Because of what I believe about God. Because I believe about who he is and all he's done in his gospel. Because I believe he owns it all. Because I believe I'm a steward, not an owner. Because I believe eternity matters. Because I believe Jesus, when he told me that I could lay up literal treasures in heaven, I give in response. Think about it. Negotiations exist in this world because trust is lacking. That's why we negotiate. Somebody says, I'll take this for it. And you say, well, how about this? It's because you think there's a better price, right? And so surely you can get it. Surely that's not the best price. Negotiations in general exist out of some fundamental lack of trust in human nature. And so there should be no negotiating with God because there should be a complete and total trust. And so we don't give in a negotiation or in in an arm twist or a request. We give out of response to Him and who He is. He says their gift was acceptable and, a pleasing, and pleasing to God. See, an offering or sacrifice only matters if it pleases the one you're offering. it to. If God does not accept it, He's not pleased. It's not worship if it's merely a, it's merely a, transaction, a transaction. It may be a religious activity, but it's not worship if it's not pleasing to God. For it to be worshiped, God must be pleased. The most important thing about your giving, whatever you give, and whatever ministries you give to, and all that stuff, and whatever amounts you give, the most important thing is whether God's pleased or not. That is the most important thing. Not anybody else. Not even you. Is God pleased. He says God was pleased with their offering. You know, Cain found out the hard way that God's not always pleased with our offering. You know the story, maybe of Cain and Abel. They were the first two children born on this planet to Adam and Eve. And one day they decided to worship. Now Cain was a man of um, of the of the field. He was a he was a he was a farmer basically. And um, Abel was a shepherd, more or less. He he cared for animals. And Cain brought some of his crops to God as an offering. Abel brought the first fruits of, of, of from 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 the from the animals. He brought the uh, Abel brought from his flock. Fat portions, that was considered the best part of the flock. He brought the best part of the, flo- the of, of the meat, the, the fat portions. That was what was considered um, the, the best part. And he brought the firstborn, which was considered the best. In other words, he didn't like wait and count all of his sheep, right? It wasn't like he waited to see how many of these animals that he had and then decided what he would offer to God. The first ones that were born, he took those and he gave those to God. All right? That was how he did it. It was the, it was the first fruits, a principle that runs throughout the Bible. The only thing, when you look at it, God rejected Cain's offering and ultimately rejected Cain. And God accepted Abel's. Now, some say it's because uh, Abel's was a blood offering. And that's possible that God had told them to offer that kind of offering and that he didn't. But the text only gives us one thing. And that was one offered the first fruits and the other one just made an offer. That's the only thing that we can really see from the text. And then we get to Hebrews and the Bible says that the real deal was this. Abel's was from a heart of faith. It said he gave from faith. And you know, the Bible teaches us without faith it's impossible to please God. So what am I driving it? The issue was Cain's heart. It was something in his heart that kept him from giving in the way God wanted him to give. To trust God and to give by faith. His offering may have been much more like a request than a response of faith. And God rejected the offering because, not because he didn't like crops, but because it's a worship issue. It's a heart issue. It was, it was his heart was the problem. And so we have to realize that when we give, it's not about how big the check is. It's about the heart of the giver. That's why God says give not just generously, but joyously. Not just sacrificially, but joyously. It's a heart issue. God is not pleased with all offerings. He's not about ritual, but heart. He doesn't need our money. God doesn't need your money. He doesn't need my money. He doesn't need our money. The Bible says He owns cattle on a thousand hills. In other words, He owns it all. He doesn't need money. I hear stories about people that say... People get—I've never heard of this here, by the way—but I've, I've heard of this at other churches. Or people get angry, you know, about what's going on in the church. They just decide, "Well, I just won't tithe, and I just won't give my offer." I'm, I'm mad, well, God. They don't need that. He can send four more people in here. To, to get, he don't—that you know, that doesn't do anything. I mean, yeah, that's—that's that's a silly thing to do. I mean, find a new church. I mean, if that's how you feel, that's what—what what should be the case. If—if if that's where our heart is, we're probably in the wrong place. That God doesn't want us to do that. But the point is, that's not going to hurt God. God God can more than richly supply whatever he wants to do through the local church and through other ministries. And he does it. God's not after your money. God is after your heart. It's your heart. Philippi was not a wealthy church. It was not a wealthy church. Not full of wealthy people. In other portions of Scripture, we find that the churches in Macedonia were, were poor. He actually says the churches in Macedonia, he says, in one portion of Scripture, gave out of their poverty. Philippi was a Macedonian church. They were the first one to give. This was a poor church. Not a church. Just This, 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 this wasn't a, a, a church lined up with Rolls Royces outside. This, this, this wasn't a wealthy church. This was a church that didn't have a lot, but took what they had and invested it in God's ministry. But Paul knew that maybe because of that, they'd be a little worried. Maybe we gave too much. Maybe we're not going to have enough now. Maybe we got a little bit too eager. Maybe we just got a little too too worked up and we overcommitted. Over and so the very next verse, in verse 19, he says, My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. What's this point? You don't need to be anxious that you gave too much or that you've overcommitted or that God can't handle this. You supplied my need and God's going to supply you. See, he actually uses the same word in the Greek. Where he said same root word. He's where he says you supplied, I'm which I'm, I'm I'm well supplied, and then he says God will supply for you. It's a link, and his point is this: you provided for me. Know this, God will provide for you. That's the point. That's the point. What makes our generosity possible is God's generosity. He meets our need. He supplies for us, and that enables us to give. So what does it mean that, that God will supply them this way? He, you see the, the phrase there. He will supply your need according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? read this quote to you from John MacArthur. I love this quote. He says it means this. His giving to them would be relative to the immensity of His eternal wealth. That is, as generously as is consistent with His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So, How generously will God provide for me? Look at Jesus. Look at the cross. Look at, look at His glory. Look. He's got you covered is this point. The point is, you can't outgive God. That's his point. As Richard Mellick said, in, in your ministering to others, God will minister to you. Paul had everything he needed to be content, even in prison. God had supplied. God would supply. Why, Philippi needed to be content as well. It's not a promise that they're going to be wealthy. That's not there. Paul's, why would Paul make that promise? He's in prison, needing an offering in order to, to have the basic necessities he needs for life. So he's not promising them wealth, but he is promising them contentment. Because you can do all things through Christ to strengthen you. And in verse 20, Paul is so welled up with worship, he just cries out, To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul could no longer hold it in. He's erupting in worship as he thinks about how God will richly supply and provide. Because God's provision is meant not just for our good, it's meant for His glory. Giving is a spiritual issue, not simply a financial transaction. When you believe God is your provider... And you trust Him to take care of your needs, and you're content with what He's provided in your life, you can then begin to be generous to give for His glory. So, how about you this morning? How's your offering? Is your offering pleasing to the Lord? Are you giving as a response or as a request? What's the the heart matter? When we trust God to provide, we can be free to give generously to what God's doing and we can see Him provide for us. That's part of the blessing of giving. That's what he's pointing out. Man, you, you've made this sacrificial offering, but no, now you're going to see God do an incredible thing in your life. You're, you're nervous, you're anxious, but know this, God's going to supply for your needs. And when you're giving and you're generous, that's when you get to see God work in your life and God provide you, for you in ways that you didn't realize He could do. It's not always the way you dream it up. It's just not. He he doesn't promise to do it your way. He just promises to take care of us. In verse 22, Paul closes his letter with an encouragement for them to greet the saints and the believers in Christ. And the interesting thing, I think, is he mentions Caesar's household. He says he sends a greeting to them from Caesar's household. Paul's in prison in Rome. Now, that doesn't just mean Caesar's family. His household would include anybody that worked for Caesar, this evil, wicked emperor at that time. I think it would have been vastly encouraging for this Roman colony, this little Rome out in Philippi. They were connected to Rome. They were a colony of Rome to know that there were people that were working for that evil emperor who had come to faith in Jesus. Some of them before Paul got there, some of them after Paul got there, surely. But that God was was using Paul in that way and their giving in that way to make that kind of impact in the most influential city underneath the reign of the most influential man in the world at that time. God's glory. He signs off with very important words for us. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit. It's important for us to remember, as we think back to all we've learned through Philippians, how time and again Paul calls us to follow holy examples, even to take the mind of Christ, to be, to, to, to be like Christ. Over and over again to follow the, his example, Epaphroditus' example, Timothy's example, be humble, all, all these just big callings in Philippians. It's important for us to remember, even in, in this passage, when we see it, the call to contentment and the call to generosity that we can't do any of this or live any of this apart from the grace of God. This is not a call to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Don't hear this message that way. To grit your teeth and to get tougher. Hear and realize contentment and generosity both flow from the heart and the spirit that has been impacted by the grace of God. If you want to be more content, if you want to be more generous... You need to look to Jesus and trust Jesus and follow Jesus and let Jesus' grace change you and understand all God has done and provided through Christ as the most beautiful picture of His supply and of His grace. So let me ask you this morning. First of all, do you know Jesus? Maybe today you don't know Christ personally. Maybe you've not experienced what it means to come into a relationship with Christ and have Him strengthen you. I encourage you today to, to run to Jesus in faith if you don't know Him personally. Maybe today you are a Christian, as many of us are this morning, and maybe the vast majority of the room, I don't know. Are you being strengthened by Christ to be content? Are you living generously in your life? Do you regularly worship through your giving? Do you need to make a new commitment in your life? Are, are there elements that you look at your life and you say, I'm growing to become less content and more greedy, or I'm growing to become more generous? As you look back over the last year, Last five years, you look back over the track record you've like, which direction are you bending towards? It's an important thing for us to analyze, all of us. Do you regularly worship in this way? What do you need to do today? What would God have you do today to apply this message to your life? Is there discontentment in your life that you need to deal with? Is there are you not fully relying on Christ's strength and looking to the things of the world to make you content and finding out that they fall short? You need to go to Christ for strength. You need to confess your sin. Do you need to develop a healthy pattern of giving in your own life and of generosity? I think you should give to whatever local church you're involved with. If you don't want to do that, give somewhere. I'd rather you give somewhere than nowhere. But I do think you should should give to your local church. I really do. I do. I think you should. And I think wherever that is, maybe you're visiting with us this morning. it's It's not about the amount of money. It's about what God wants to do in your heart. And about what God wants to do through you and how God wants to not only bless others through you, but how God wants to bless you. So what needs to be your response this morning to God's provision? He has richly supplied for us. Not just in the physical realm, I mean in, in, in the spiritual realm as well. What is our response this morning? Are, are there areas in your life that you need to be shaped in, in, your, in areas of contentment, in areas of generosity? The key to that is looking to God's provision and trusting.